You're listening to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm your host, Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and this is episode 78. My guest is architect Steve Smyers. You might remember Smyers from way back in episode 7 in 2017. If you haven't listened to that conversation, you can find it for no charge at feedtheball.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts and music. While you're there, please subscribe to the show, and if you haven't already, leave a star rating and a brief review, and or forward the podcast to friends or people in the business. Anything you can do helps support the show. I wanted to invite Steve back on for a discussion specifically about strategy. Most of us tend to think of strategy in the old sense, as in the ideas of playing lines laid out by Alistair McKenzie, George Thomas, Tom Simpson, and others, and later utilized and developed by Robert Trent Jones, Dick Wilson, Pete Dye, and others. In essence, you survey the playing field, identify hazards and choose lines of attack, and weigh the risks and benefit of taking on an aggressive play. Pulling it off should lead to a more optimal next shot. McKinsey's famous two-shot hole he drew for the old Country Life Design competition in 1914 is a perfect summation of classical strategy, where hazards and moguls provide points around which differently skilled golfers can tack their way toward the green, either safely or with the idea of making the lowest possible score. A simpler and even more popular form of strategy, think of it as shading strategy, was employed by McKinsey and Bob Jones at Augusta, whereby playing a drive incrementally closer to a lateral hazard or bunker results in an incrementally better angle to the target on the next shot. That concept of placing a difficult shot to gain a better angle or a closer approach is timeless and continues to define how the most thoughtful architects design holes to this day. Smyers, however, has come to see things differently, at least as it pertains to elite players. Which is somewhat ironic given that the higher degree of skill a golfer has, the more likely it is he or she will be able to accomplish target placement and take advantage of angles and risk-reward situations. Smyers insists to do so, however, at least on any kind of regular basis, is foolish. That isn't the way good players should approach strategy, and he's tried to adjust the way he sets up his architecture to account for how elite players actually or should actually play. To understand his way of thinking, you have to know that he himself is an elite player who's competed in and won his share of prominent amateur and club tournaments. Smyers grew up playing competitively and was a member of those mid-1970s University of Florida teams that consisted of Andy Bean, Gary Koch, and Fred Ridley, the 1975 U.S. amateur champ who is now chairman of Augusta National. His wife is former LPGA player Sharon Smyers, and his son has competed on different professional mini-tours in recent years. So Steve knows what skilled play looks like. We'll get into the details of his way of thinking in this discussion, but I find his outlook on where strategy is in the modern elite game to be very thought-provoking, and not something I've heard architects talk much about in these terms. It's almost like anti-strategy, or certainly strategy redefined. In fact, if what he outlines is true, it almost symbolizes the death of strategic play as we know it. Maybe it's been that way at the highest levels for a while now, since the pros rarely have to approach holes tactically through angles the way they used to, but it's worth considering the impact it might have on golf course architecture and how tournament courses might be better designed or redesigned to challenge and engage professional and high amateur play. I've held for a long time there's a certain fallacy to talking about strategy at all, since most golfers aren't capable of hitting specific lines or playing to one side or another of a fairway or green unless they are prodigiously sized. Mostly it's magical thinking. The majority are just trying to put a solid strike on the ball and keep it between reasonable boundaries. That isn't to say that hazards and strategic elements shouldn't exist on golf holes precisely for the purpose of making us think. 
In fact, it's a requirement of good architecture and a good golf course. But let's just admit there are going to be a lot of ingredients in the dish that aren't going to get consumed or will find their way onto the fork only by chance. The real question, and this goes straight to the topic at hand, is whether average amateur golf can reasonably coexist with elite golf on the same course at the same time. Because all of the formidable McKinsey-like obstacles and opportunities are just going to be taken out of play by the ace player, yet will inevitably gobble up the bogey golfer. Steve Smyers has been thinking about this question for the last few decades as deeply as anyone in the profession not named Pete Dye. So let's hear more. Here's me talking to Steve Smyers. Okay, I, I remember we first went around Southern Dunes, what, 20 years ago, probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah, we yeah. Uh, Southern Dunes. Yeah. What was the one of the, um, the Lakeland course that closed? Was it like Bridgewater? Oh, or? Bridgewater. Yeah. yeah, very good. We very saw good. that. You took yeah. me around um, the course in Orlando. The, again, another one that's no longer in existence, the um, Grand, Grand, Grand Pines. Pines. That yeah. was a cool, that was a really cool course. You did I'm a lot impressed with your there. memory. Awesome. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And then I think you went to Plantation Bay too, Club yep. de Beaumont. Yep. Club de Beaumont. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, it's interesting. Um, they keep, I keep going over there. I got such a good relationship with those guys. We're going to be, we're going to, you know, we added some bulkheaded. We're going to redo the practice range. They're building this fabulous clubhouse. We're doing a short game area. And we're like everybody else, uh, other than everybody else, we're actually planting trees. Wow. And the reason, well, the reason we're doing it because it's a development course. And for years I've been on the owner to kind of take some of the vistas of some of the homes out. Mm-hmm. And it only took me 20 years to convince them. So they're <laughs> along the sides though, to, to block views. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a spacious course, but we could just use some, some things there to, to kind of uh, create an edge, a stronger edge. I agree as with opposed that. To homes. Yeah. 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 Focus, focus the attention on the golf holes. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is a conversation I I wanted to have. You teased this. Your I remember I at the ASGA meeting when it was in Orlando before COVID. You teased it real quick to me and said, you know, you've had some evolving thoughts on strategy. Yeah. And then yeah. we had a chance to talk about it a little bit um, at another point in time. And I've just been thought about it quite a lot. I've been really interested in, in hearing more about it. And I wanted to have a conversation on a podcast where you could kind of sure. share your views about this and, and we'll see, you know, if other people have come to the same conclusion or, or if you're onto something that unique, and then we'll talk about how it's affected you as an architect as, as well. Yeah. But maybe you could rewind and kind of walk me through again the evolution of your thoughts on design because those courses that that we just mentioned that you and I had seen together we had a lot of discussions about you know kind of classical thoughts on strategy you know the old uh, you know Tom Simpson head you close to a bunker buy yourself a better angle play away from it maybe disadvantage and and I think you had been keen on bu- buying into that and incorporating a lot of those classical classical strategic thinking into your designs as had most people who studied it and, and had revered uh, the classical era. Now you've kind of moved away from that. So what was the journey that, that you've been on and, and, and where, where have you ended up? Yeah. So that's, that's a great point. So, uh, you know, I try to 
trying to think of myself as a forward thinking guy and, and a guy that uh, is always, you know, looking for new ideas to strengthen, to strengthen my, you know, what my product, so to speak. I made a, uh, made a presentation to the golf course superintendents association in the early nineties, talking about the future of design. And I talked about big wide fairways, angles and everything like that, that you talked about what McKenzie and Simpson and, uh, you know, a lot of the classical architects of the past did, uh, mentioned. And then I played one of my golf courses, which I'm not going to name in a competition in 2002. And I hit this perfect tee shot on the first hole. And I had an opening to the pin to the hole location. And I went at it because I hit my tee shot so good. I, I positioned it perfectly and I came off it a little bit. And I short-sided myself and I got it up and down. I made about a 15 footer for par. And I said to myself on the way to the next tee, I said, that was the stupidest shot I've ever hit because I've got all this area to the left of the pin. And why did I, why did I hit it in that position? And I said, from now on, I'm just going to play safe and just let whatever happens, happens. And I went on to win that tournament. And I, I was feeling pretty good about myself driving, driving home. And I thought about it and I said, you know, I got to really think about this. And then I really thought back on my uh, journey through the game of golf. Uh, and it started at Champions Golf Club when we, when I was a junior golfer, I, uh, I was, was a fairly good player in Houston and Jackie Burke took a liking to me because his son, John was my age. Uh, John's no longer with us, but we, we were out playing champions golf club one time. It was a hot June day and we're walking down the fifth fairway and Jackie Burke comes up and he says, boys, jump on the golf cart. We're going to go watch Ben Hogan hit golf balls. So it was me, Jackie Burke, Jimmy DeMerritt, John Burke and Ben Hogan and uh, watched it. I can remember the sound of the golf ball of Hogan's clubs. I remember the caddy uh, shagging balls with just basically a baseball glove and never really having to step one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And then when Hogan went to get his driver, he said, he looked at Jimmy DeMerritt. He said, Jimmy, the most important part of the game, if you drive it good, you attack the golf course. If you drive it bad, the golf course attacks you. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me. Now, this is after my 2002. I'm going through all these memories. I'm thinking back to the uh, U.S. Open that I caddied for in 1969 at Champions. And I remember all the players talking about managing their way around the golf course. I didn't really have enough golfing IQ to understand it at the time, but I remembered those conversations. Uh, Another conversation was with Nick Faldo, when he, in 1992, when he went to see Ben Hogan about how he thought his way around for the U.S. Open. And Hogan spoke about, you know, analyzing the golf hole. And if the pin was in the back right, you want to try to favor the left side of the fairway and vice versa. And uh, Faldo looked at him. He said, Mr. Hogan, that's the way golf was played in your days. But in today's world, the fairways are so perfect. You just find the fairway. Then you work the ball right to left, remain to the middle of the middle of the putting surface, and you work the ball right to left, left to right, whatever the whole location is. And he basically said it's all about controlling the spin. And he said, Mr. Hogan, back in your day, 
the fairways were much longer and you you had you caught flyers and, and you couldn't control the spin as much. In today's world, we can control the spin. That was 1992. That was close to 30 years ago. Then I remember conversations with Nick Price, Jack Nicholas, Seve, and, and I just started reflecting on all those conversations. And so I I thought, okay, uh, let's let's put a little bit more emphasis on uh, picking your targets off the tee, driving the golf ball, and uh, setting up uh, hole locations on the putting surface that you had to have the discipline to either shoot away from it or the, or the ability to hit at the middle of the green. And like Faldo said, or even Tiger said in his prime, work the golf ball from the middle of the green to, the, to a hole location, whether it's to the right or to the left. So that's kind of the conversation I had with myself. And then our next course was Isleworth in Orlando in 2002. And we were retained to, at the time, Tiger was playing golf there. And there were 31 other touring pros that played there. And we were retained to build a golf course to prepare them for tournament play. So that's when my evolution of my, my thought process absolutely changed. And ever since then, I've been thinking about, uh, you know, how 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 uh, how elite players actually play the game, what their shot dispersion is, and what their thought process is. Ever since then, yeah. Let's go back. It's interesting that you mentioned Ben Hogan because I've heard stories about you know every golf course has a Ben Hogan story. It's like you know sure, Ben Hogan sure. loved this golf course, or he, this is one of his favorite par fours. But one thing I I did hear about Hogan was when he would go to a, a golf course he wasn't familiar with and he was going to compete there, he would walk it backwards. And again, I don't know right. if this is true. This might have been apocryphal, but he would walk it backwards because he'd see the the way the green was laid out, and from behind it would he could tell the best angle in to the green, and that's mm-hmm. where he would try to place his drives yeah. for that course. Now, the reason, as you just said. Is not just strategy. There were there was another reason for that, and it's because you had to give yourself some runway into greens during that era because conditioning was so spotty. And we we kind of yes. take this for granted that even a, a I guess a, a modestly budgeted course with maintenance still has fairly consistent fairways. They may not be tight, but the grass is at least uniform in most places. Back right. then, you know, you could catch, uh, you know, you could bulk, you'd be in the fairway, but you could be on a little patch of dirt or a scruffy lie, or you just never knew what you were going to get. So exactly. conditioning exactly. is a big element of that, isn't it? Oh, 100%. You're spot on on that. Yeah. Conditioning is a big element. Uh, the other thing, Derek, uh, I want to mention this before I forget about it, is uh, the groove rule that we implemented in 2010. And I think, you know, I was involved in that. I was involved in that decision-making process, being on the Equipment Standards Committee. Explain that really uh, quick, Steve. Yeah, basically, we, you know, back in Hogan's days, they had V-grooves. Uh, and then Ping came out in the, in the mid-'80s with the, with the box grooves or the square grooves. Mm-hmm. And that it had the ability to impart much more con- uh, control, uh, much more spin, which will allow you to control the golf ball. As a matter of fact, with the box screws or square grooves, uh, it was kind of the wedge would spin just as much out of the rough as it did the fairway. An eight iron did too. I think it was an eight iron, but a five iron actually spun more out of the rough with the the ping I2 uh, square grooves than it did out of the fairway. So basically, 
wherever you were. It didn't matter where you drove by. That's where all the old bomb and gouge came out with because you could still spin the golf ball as long as the rough wasn't so deep that you just couldn't advance it. But if you could, if you could make get it get a, a reasonably good strike on the golf ball, you could control the spin as much with square grooves and the rough as you could the fairway. We went back to the V grooves in 2010 for elite play, uh, for pro tours in 2014 for amateur play, and that basically uh, the data on that is quite remarkable. That the controlling the spin on the golf ball out of the fairways is much greater than that controlling the spin out of the rough. And I want to emphasize this. The, the, the studies were all at just the, just the grass going to the equator of the golf ball only. It didn't mean that it was a hack it out lie. It just meant that you could still get a club on it, but you weren't controlling the spin near as much. So you would still say, well, people, they could still hit it out of the rough on the, on the putting surface. That's true. But the, the spin rate coming out of the rough was not as much where they could control it. So, you, you know, a guy might hit a nine iron. I, I did this experiment on my own. I was hitting nine irons with, I think, about a 6,800 spin rate. Uh, and I was flying them pretty consistent. I went in light rough, and the ball was coming out either three yards less or three yards more, you know, depending on the spin. And the ball, I didn't have near as much spin on the golf balls. I can't remember what it was. So basically you're hitting the ground and the ball, you're losing a little control of the golf ball. You, you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. There? Yep. The grass so, was just yeah. enough to, you know, and, and, and contr- distance control and spin is everything at the highest level. Exactly. Right. So, you know, and for elite players, the only time, and I'm a, I'm big on uh, on designing a pro. You, with this is the feed the ball podcast. I'm big on feeding the golf ball. Yeah. But the only way elite players are going to do it is if they're if they have light rough and they know they're they know that it's going to come out with a, a kind of a tumbler, so to speak. They'll hit it short and run it up. Mm-hmm. But if they're in the fairway, they're going to take the aerial route every single time. So so. You know, this, what you're talking about is a slow progression, you know, going back to that conversation that Nick Faldo, you heard Nick Faldo and Ben Hogan have, which yeah. must have been incredible to to be witness to those types Faldo of Faldo told me the conversation, yeah, itself personally, yeah. yeah. But, but it, so, so conditioning of golf courses, the way golf courses are maintained, the ability to grow grass, the ability to, to, to water it, to, to, to feed it, uh, goes hand in hand with this kind of slow progression uh, at the elite level into a changing the way that their uh, elite players are able to play a golf course. Yes. Yes. And the same thing, you know, it's kind of interesting. If you look at on that same note, if you look at the evolution of putter design and the evolution of the putting stroke, it is in direct relationship to the introduction of maintenance equipment and, and introduction of new hybrid turf grasses. Uh, you know, think for example, in 1920, the lowest height to cut that any mower could mow, the lowest height to cut was three quarters of an inch. You know, our first cut of rough is now three quarters of an inch. Mm-hmm. So the first, the putting surfaces back then were three quarters of an inch and the loft on a putter was 11 degrees. Now think about 11 degrees aloft. We don't even have drivers with 11 degrees aloft right now. Right. And the putting stroke was mainly wrist as a pop stroke. Uh, and the other side of the equation is with may, with labor back then, they may only mowed the greens two or three times a week. 
So, you know, they, they were putting on pretty, pretty, pretty hairy putting surfaces back then. Yeah. And even into uh, the, I was, I've just been reading this book called golfers gold by Tony Lima. He wrote it in, yeah. I think 63. And he's talking about when he's in a slump and he's, he's starting to play really good golf, but his putting was poor. And he goes to see this old pro who gives him a lesson and his pros telling him, well, it's all, you know, your putting stroke is all in your right hand. You know, you got to use that right hand to drive it. And I was thinking like the, you know, you, you wouldn't make a dime playing golf nowadays if that was your putting stroke with a right hand and dominated, you know, they, yeah, right now everything's done to take the, take the hands out of the putting stroke. That's right. Everything was a, it was a pop, pop. Yeah. And right that was hand. into the 1960s. And I'm sure that, I don't think that, I'm not sure that, you know, the modern green grass, the grass on the greens, the, the maintenance ability really got anywhere close to it is now, probably until the, the eighties. 96. 96. You think it was with the inter- introduction of the ultra dwarfs. That's when, that's when there was a dramatic change and it went, uh, putters went basically down to two, two degrees of effective loft. And it, it went more to a big, a big muscle stroke. A tiger is the perfect example of that. Mm. He's the perfect example of, of putting that way. Uh, just a note on that in 1977, the USGA did their first formal green speed reading of elite clubs in America. Yeah. Uh, they did Augusta during the week of the Masters. They did Pine Valley in September, Mary in September. They did L.A. Country Club, all elite clubs. The average green speed was 7.8. Augusta's during the week of the Masters was 7.9. Marion, and I love Marion. Marion had a lot of greens. That they did like four putting surfaces, and they're all in the fives. They were like five eight, five five, five. One was even five five. Was five seven, five nine. So the greens committee went to the board and requested an increase in the maintenance budget so they could mow the putting surfaces five times a week, up from three times a week. <laughs> so you think of what now? You go to the worst muni course in the world. If they don't mow the putting surfaces every day, they're behind the eight ball. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that's how that's how things have changed. So just yeah. just out, of, I don't know if you, I don't know if you have the data or not, but what do you suspect that green speeds were at those at those same clubs in like 1990? Uh I couldn't tell you right like off maybe, the top of my maybe head. Maybe maybe two feet faster at the most. Like, so I will tell you down south here, if you had putty surfaces at eight, you were rocking and rolling. Up north, when I first started working up north in the late 80s, 10 was just, oh, uh, you know what? I had a conversation with Mike Davis uh, about green speeds in the early 90s. And he was talking about setting up for the U.S. Open and getting them at 10. And how and how difficult it was to find whole locations at 10. Wow. Yeah, that was, and now, now of course, when, when I was involved in 2000 and when Cabrera won was in 2007 at Oakmont, right. uh, those greens were starting off at 14.8 in the morning and down to 13.8 in the afternoon. You know, they, they talk about greens getting slow and, or fast and bumpy during the afternoon. Grass actually grows. So the putting surfaces slow down. What happens is you get all the footprints and the wind kicks up. And if you're downhill, downwind, and with all the trampled grass, yeah, then then it feels like it's out of control, but the greens actually slow down a little bit. Right. Yeah. Well, that just that just tells you how all those U.S. Open Classic course greens have must have been modified. If they couldn't find pin placements at ten, and now they're all running at thirteen and fourteen, that you know everything is flattened out. 
Yeah, just a just a smidge. Yes, yeah, just flattened out. Yeah. Of course, we used to eyeball everything back in the old days. We'd eyeball our putting serves. Now we now we now we uh, shoot great on all. We have to make sure that we you know that we're not getting too far out of control. Absolutely, yeah, right. Yeah. It's just changed so much. Well, this, the putting surface will go back into what we're talking about. Let's okay. get back into into the, your uh, developing thoughts on strategy. So basically, sure. you what you from that tournament that you played on your own golf course, you had built in. Uh, specific strategies on on different holds, thinking like you know, the, here's position A where I want to be, but, right. it, but it's a challenge position, so I'm, I'm taking on some risk, and if I get there, I'll have some benefit playing for it. That's classic. That's 101. Right. It's you had, had adopted that in in your thinking before. Now you, you've changed and thought, going back into your memory, pulling up all these thoughts about just basically getting the getting the drive in play, center of the fairway unless there's something there is, is the best play. Is that right? In the fair, in the fairway, in the fairway, because if you had a hundred, think of it in this terms, if you had a hundred two the 200 best touring pros on the tee with a straightaway hole with no wind conditions, 30 yard wide fairway, 60% of them are going to hit it in the fairway. 60%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the whole key is just to get it in the fairway. Do you, and I've heard this before. I've heard other people, you know, kind of, kind of speculate and talk about it. And maybe there's some s- stats to back it up. But do you think that elite players on a 30-yard wide fairway or 35-yard, are they are they aiming down the middle or aiming down the left if they play a fade, opposite if they play play a draw? But but they're not trying to like hit that 10 yards on the left side or the 10 yards on the right, are they? They they're they're not. Nobody's that good. And and I've got to tell you, Derek. Nobody is that good, and if they're that good, they're smart enough not to know to do that because they know they're because they know they're not, not that good. If that if that makes sense. So um, if I, I'm I'm getting a little far afield here, but no. if if the best players in the world are not good enough to favor one side of a fairway or another, why is strategy even a thing? Because considering the the other 99% of the people who play most of the golf certainly won't be able to, you know, read a, a read the strategy of a hole and, and play down the left side. They've got no, they've got no clue really. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, Derek, that's a very, very good question. And so I hope I can articulate this right. The, the tee shot actually just sets the golf hole up. You've got to know where your target is. And so the strategy off the golf hole is under the conditions, where is your target? What is your target going to be? And that's the first thing. And then the second thing is if you have a space that's out there that's in the driving zone and you think it's a little too hard to, to attack it, do you lay up short of that? Example is the fifth hole Augusta when uh, Will Zalatoris played so good when uh, Hideki won, won the Masters. You think about the fifth hole there, for example. Will Zalatoris on Saturday and Sunday, I didn't see it the prior, prior days, but on Saturday and Sunday hit three metal off the tee so he wouldn't get to the to the trouble. He just wouldn't get there. He took the trouble out of play. And it's a wide, the fairway is very wide. So he realized that if he takes the trouble out of play, he'll hit a longer shot into the putting surface and he'll just trust his short game. He'll trust his putter. He'll trust his chipper or whatever like that. Realizing that the bunkers in the, the fair, the, the fairway bunkers are so penal that there's hardly a player that can hit out of those bunkers and onto the green. 
So it's like it's like uh, three uh, three quarters of a shot penalty because they're just they're they're wedging it out and Hideki hit it in the bunker. He hit a wedge out and then he hit this wonderful pitch shot into the green. I don't know three or four feet or something like that and made the putt for a par. Xander Shoffley uh, tried to drive it as well. He hit it right uh, in the trees, chipped out, ended up hitting it in the back bunker at three and it, well it chipped out. Or hit a tree. I can't remember, but he ended up yep. getting it up and getting up and down out of the back bunker for a um, for a bogey for a double bogey. So Zalatoris basically took all the trouble out of play. Um, and that on that on that particular type type of situation, he uh, that was the strategy: not to hit a driver, to lay back, and to have a longer shot into the green, and you pick your target from there. With a regular driving hole. If the fairway, I try to get the fairways to move a little bit, and depending on the climatic conditions and depending on your shot shape, you pick, you figure out where to pick a target. Um, and what I'm doing now, Derek, is I'm doing multiple teeing rounds at different angles into the fairway and different hole lengths that are different. So one day you may have a hole for a long par four that might play in the 500-yard range, and you might be on a left tee hole location, so to speak. Then you might have a uh, another team ground that the hole might play in the 380, 390 range, and you would attack the fairway from a different angle. So that player would have to understand where, what club they want to hit, what and what position they want to uh, to aim at to give them the biggest margin of error. Uh, and then from there, depending on the hole location, their lie, their stance, the wind, and everything like that, and the length of shot into the hole. They pick their target into the putting surface from there. Mm-hmm. So it's about understanding your percentages, and it's about understanding your uh, your dispersion. So, given this knowledge that that you accrued, that you came to realize, and and it's all con- it's connected to many things: the equipment, uh, the turf conditions, but and, and the knowledge that elite players. And again, we're talking about elite players here. Sure, sure. Um, are really are trying to get the ball in the fairway full stop. They're not trying yeah. to to play an angle uh, right. so knowing this it, it means what i think what that means then is i'm not sure i want to try to get try to suss out where does this leave the, the concept of strategy is there such a thing as strategy at that point if it's a matter of execution or is strategies is it really about making decisions reading the golf hole and making decisions and now strategy is entirely mental versus tactical yeah it is about making decisions about making proper decisions. And I think all the great players, if you read Bobby Jones, how he used to play the game of golf, he said he believed himself the widest margin of error possible. That was That's what he had in his book. He'd leave himself the widest margin of error possible. So if a bunker was on the right side of the fairway and that cut off a little bit of distance and that was a better angle, he would shoot away from that bunker in case, you know, he just was trying to take the take all the trouble out of play. So I think you're right. It is it's strategy is about decision making. It's about decision making. Now, where do you want to leave yourself with the next shot? So you so off the tee, if you have a if you have a, a, a penalty area on the left hand side of the fairway, and a bunker on the right hand side of the fairway, what's the target that you're going to pick in case in case you don't hit it exactly where you're looking? Right, exactly where you're intending to play. Where are you going to leave yourself to have the shot into the next? Uh, leave yourself for the position into the next shot. 
Likewise, onto the putting surface, if you have a left hole location and you know that short siding yourself left is dead, what target do you pick to totally take that left side out of the equation? Does, so, that, does that kind of make sense to you? It does make sense. Um, I, and again, I know we're talking about, you know, elite players who, who won't face this next thing I'm about to say you know, yeah. with the same concern, you know, Pete Dye, you know, would always do the same thing. You know, he would challenge you off the tee with, with something, some kind of obstacle or interference. But if you, if you took it on, you'd be in a great position to, to attack yeah. on your next shot. And if you played away from it, it's, uh, you had a much more challenging second shot. Now for a handicap player, that was a real challenge. You know, it, it was, it's def- deferred penalty. If you take the right. easy shot up front, which is what you're saying, playing away from a hazard to give yourself the best chance right. to, to stay in the hole, you'd have a harder shot. Now, a great player, you know, being the difference between being 170 yards out with a good line and 190 yards out with not as great line isn't that big of a deal. They're just going to hit a longer club. It, it, it actually is. The closer you are, the better you're going to be for a great player. So yeah. so where does that fit, fit in? You can't expect to play great golf by playing safe off the tee all the time. I mean, there's got to be a fine line between being in the fairway and, and being out of position on a... So, yeah. Derek, I would I would call it not safe, but percentage. Um, and if, and I, I, you know, I, I would call it the aggressive player and the, and the, uh, the conservative. Well, I guess you'd say it's uh, the aggressive player and the, uh, and the percentage player. Percentage player. Uh, Percentage player. So you, you, you're talking about it. So if you play that golf hole over the course of a tournament four times, what's your percentage you're going to take on that trouble and succeed those four rounds? As opposed to what's your what's your percentage of shooting away from the target, or, or I'm sorry, shooting away from the trouble and having a safe shot into the putting surface from there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more about percentages as opposed to that one particular shot and that one aggressive round. Right, right. So yeah. so there is, you know, it, so that goes back to the decision-making aspect of strategy. You have yeah. to know when to take on the risk. When is it worth it? When do you need it versus what's the percentage of, of not taking it on? Exactly. So if you if you just look at the percentages, like if I'm out playing playing golf and I hit, hit it, I miss the green, and I look at either a chip or a putt, I look at the lie, I look at the shot, and I say my percentage percentages of hit, hitting this with a putter, I know I'm not going to mess it up. What are my percentages of, of, of getting it somewhere around the hole as opposed to chipping where I could, where I could fluff it, so to speak, mm-hmm. or blade it? So I know I'm not going to do that with a putter. What are my percentages with the lie that I have? And I, and I play those percentages. Yeah. So, so talk about – you mentioned this earlier at the beginning – and I think this is equally as fascinating. You know, we talked about the tee shot and the drive and um, and and how even good players are just trying to get the ball in the fairway, essentially. Second shots or third shots into greens, when you're approaching a green, you talked about what Nick Faldo said. You know, we don't, we don't need the angle anymore. What our play, what we try to, you know, we'll aim at the middle of the green or whatever our target is and then try to move the ball off that toward the flag. And if it doesn't move, you know, you have a longer putt, but you're still safe. Yeah. You know, can expand your thoughts on that a little bit more if, if you if you can because that's the second aspect of the, of this you know we have we have this so many of us have this strategic perception if you're out of position or had a bad angle you you're you're going to be in trouble at that point and or maybe you try to get over aggressive and make up for it by you know flag hunting for a tucked pin but yeah. you know good players and and the way you read strategy now that's not necessarily the case 
Now, it's about controlling the spin. If you actually look at the data, where the, the PGA Tour data, um, with, a, with a tucked hole location on the right, whether you're on the right side of the fairway or the left side of the fairway, at any yardage, the scoring average is about the same. So the way the way I look at it is is hit it on the putting surface and plan on trusting your lag putting. You know, when Tiger went and spoke to the Stanford University golf team, I'm gonna say like 2004, something like that. He's the number one player in the world. One of the players said, "Tiger, why are you the best player in the world?" He said, "It's simple, because I'm because I'm the best lag putter." Mm-hmm. And basically. Tiger always said he hit very aggressively to a very conservative target. Now he had, so with the back of a hole location tucked to the right, Tiger would always middle, hit to the middle of the putting surface and he would try to work it. Now he had the ability to work it, you know, both ways. You know, I think, I think uh, if I'm not getting base, off base on your question, the whole thing is, is look at, look at the round of golf in its totality. Don't try to, to score within that one bubble of a golf hole. Look at the hole. What am I going to do to score my best? And if you're out of position, what am I going to do when I'm out of position to get it back in position to so where I don't um, where I don't shoot the high score? Great golf is all about high number avoidance. It's high number avoidance is one thing for an elite touring player, and a high number avoidance is different from you and me. You know, our high number of avoidance is a double bogey. Their high number of avoidance is, is keep, keeping bogey out of the equation. And let the birdies come where they want. Don't try to force the birdies. You said that Islesworth, uh, back in the mid, I think it was probably the mid-2000s or so, was one of the first times that you, that you could kind of up, applied your different type of thinking into, into a design that was a redesign of that golf right. course. Have... Have you whatever what you did at Islesworth? Have you, has that evolved even further up until your your recent courses? You and I had a conversation last year about the foul course at I- University of Indiana. Right. Had had you traveled a, a, an extended journey beyond Islesworth into foul to uh, incorporate some new ideas based on this uh, strategic understanding that you developed? You know, Derek, we're always learning. We're always learning. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to uh, players. I'm, I'm, you know, with all the shot link data, you can study that and learn it. Uh, I've learned more when I was uh, served with the USGA on the championship committee and equipment standards. So I'm always evolving and always learning. Uh, and I think it has gone to the next level. When I did Merido on Dallas for Albert Huddleston, that was a great learning experience because there's so many great players out there. You just listen to Willie Trevino was out there. And there was not a better ball striker in the world than him. And just listening to him. Yeah, what did he say? Oh, he, he was he was all about, you know, uh, basically hitting to the safe part. Because he he always he was famous for working a fade, but he could work the golf ball both ways, but fade was just his his regular stock shot. So he just worked his fade and he just tried to his the, his big thing was to get a hole high. To get a hole high and control his irons. And he said to me, he said, the most important thing in golf is to understand how far you hit it. What he meant is everybody, everybody hits it differently. Understand how far you hit it with an iron so you can be whole high and and you shoot away from your tro- trouble. He, he was not into short-siding himself. Mm-hmm. I remember him, I think it was like in the 1982 Colonial, something like that. And he hit a six iron and the commentator came up to him. I think it was on the 18th hole. 
the commentator said, well, with the, with the uh, we call it water hazard back then with the hazard on the, on the left, he took a bold route and Trevino looked at him and said, huh, it ended up good, but I really pulled it. <laughs> so he said, he was aiming right and he really pulled it. That's how, that's how he was. That's how he thought around the golf course. He allowed himself that margin for error because if he went at the pin at the whole location and he pulled it, he would be in the penalty area. When you design, you know, it, it seems to me like thinking about designing for, and again, at, at the University of Indiana, to use that example, and Merido, as you just said, you know, yeah. you, you know, a lot of, a lot of ace players are, are going to be coming through those, those golf courses, guys who can really play. And with distance control going into greens being the most important thing for a, for that level of player, you've got to do things at the green to obviously not be silly, but, but to try to, you know, you want to defend the golf course, yeah. you know, you don't just, you don't want to just give them layups, let them shoot toward the middle of the green and, and then just have, you know, birdie runs and everything. So sure. uh, this is sort of a tangential question. And I think you've, I think you've done this before, but why in modern golf design, given this, this knowledge that, I, and I think almost, you know, most designers, if they thought about the, the great players, they would acknowledge that the height that they hit the, their irons and the spin yeah. and the control they have is, is hard to, hard to beat. Why don't we see more fall away greens like at Oakmont, where you have those greens where if you land the ball in the middle of the green, it's, it's gone. Uh, you know, the, yeah. you, you just don't see that very much. You see a lot of different tilts and orientations, but that those runaway greens are, are not common at all still after 120 years. I love, I love putting surfaces that run away from you in certain areas. Uh, that it seems way like that to, would be a way to, to combat the, the distance control. Well, you know what? That's, you bring a good point. I'm a big believer in that. Uh, yeah. I, and, and you could take certain parts of the putting surface and run some parts of the putting surface away from you and then run pu- certain parts of the su- putting surfaces towards you. I mean, so that type of variety is good. Um, I love that type of setup. It's kind of a little Redan style mix within a uh, within a putting surface. Uh, I really like it on par fives because then you really have to have the ability to control, control your wedge, maybe use the contours a little bit. Uh, the other thing I like to do a lot is kind of take take different pitches and, and, and lies and angles in the fairway. If you have a of a ball below your feet, so to speak. It's a, it's a lot to, you know, you, you have to understand your body and your swing to make solid contact with the golf ball and uh, you know, any, any type of awkward lie and, and not severe, any type of awkward lie in the fairway makes you, makes you uh, think about your, uh, your shot pattern coming off that makes you think about how, how you want to attack the, the stroke at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I really like the idea of, having certain, certain, not every green, but have certain greens kind of fall away from you. But I think depending on the site, you want that to work with the landscape and the topo, topo, topography as well. So how do you, how have you, where have you come and landed now, you know, over the last decade or so with, and, and you've, you've, you've touched on it, but where have you come, you know, building a golf course that is interesting enough for a, a great player that challenges them mentally to be able sure. to make the right decisions. And also, you know, it's, it's a, it, you know, you don't want to have these 70 yard wide fairways where they can, yeah. they really don't have to make a, make a tough decision, but you also, you know, you can get the average play around given the fact that we we've discovered today that, you know, that there's no, there is no, almost no concept of tactical strategy as in playing angles. Uh, the, yeah. the better that you get, that becomes less and less relevant. And it's not possible for, for poor players because they're not good enough to, 
to right. take advantage of it. So how do you make golf courses that can do both? It's the it's the it's the the magical you know it's the magic bus of every every architect to be able to <laughs> to satisfy both ends of the playing spectrum. Uh, it, it sounds like what you're describing is you don't have to make it. I mean, it's already going to be set up to be not terribly overwhelming for average players. Cause you're really not doing much with your hazard arrangements. Right. Uh, so, so it's all about making decisions and we will set the putting surfaces up and set up whole locations that you, depending on the lie you have, the distance of shot you have uh, and the climatic conditions, you have to make the proper decision on where to where to aim going into the going into the putting surface. And you have to make that decision based on understanding that you don't hit the golf ball where you think where, where you're looking. You know, if you have a target out there and your target, you know, your 50% of your shots are going to be right at the target, 50% of the shots are going to be left of the target. How, how what's the decision process that you're going to make on the target that you're going to pick? Uh, going into a putting surface, you know, with a left hole location, what's the target you're going to pick with a eight iron, a seven iron, nine iron or wedge, depending on the lie you have. Picking the target off the tee is also a very integral part of decision-making. What are you going to do? Now, the other part, side of the decision-making is if I don't hit it where I'm looking, what I leave myself in this position, what am I going to do next? You know, I look at Torrey Pines where they hosted the open. I look at the 17th hole there. Uh, the last round, John Rom stood up on the tee and he made the decision. I'm not agreeing with, I'm not agreeing that this is good design or bad design. I'm just looking at the golf hole and he knew at the brank on the left that that was a penalty area. That's where he did not want to go. He did not want to go there. So he aimed it right. I'm pretty sure he aimed it in the bunker and he actually hit it in the bunker. Uh, uh, what's the name? The South African uh, that uh, Louis Ostagen, uh, he tried to hit a three medal off the tee. And I'm very confident that he didn't pick a target far enough right. Uh, and he came over and hit it left. It hit, it went down and went into the penalty area and he lost the open, and he lost the US Open. So the strategy is really the decision-making process you're making. And what you're referring to is if you challenge a bunker on the right, then you, then you'll have a, uh, a better angle into the, into the green. And I understand that, but that's a decision that you're making on the, uh, making on the tee. Do I want to take on that or do I want to hit away from the trouble? So, so you, you measure up, you know, your, your percentages, of if you take on that bunker, how many times are you going to succeed and how many times you're going to fail? If you succeed, what's your, what's your uh, scoring average from your successful uh, tee shot as opposed to the conservative tee shot? And if you fail, what's your percentages from the failed tee shot as opposed to the conservative tee shot? Right. Does, does that make sense? It, it does make sense. So, so it, it makes me think that your job as an architect – is to muddy the thinking, is to try to goad players like Pete Dye would into, into miscalculating. Yes, yes. Have you, how, how successful do you think your designs have been in, in doing that, in posing over the course of an 18-hole round, getting, getting really good players to misanalyze the, the shot and their percentages? 
you know, we've had several events at uh, Merido Golf Club. We've had several events at the Fowl Golf Course at Indiana University. You know, collegiate events, high-level amateur events. And I go out there and I see them make mistakes all the time. And they're simple. They're not swing errors. They're mental mistakes. And the mental mistakes is the decision-making process. And, uh, you know, you, you saw Tiger make a statement, I should never make another mental mistake again. He, he's referring to understanding how to plot his way around the golf course. And going back to what I was saying earlier, the Pine Valley, the 14th hole at Pine Valley to me is the, uh, I'm sorry, the 13th hole yeah. at Pine Valley to me is the ultimate in conservative play versus aggressive play. The aggressive play is to hit it down the left-hand side. You have a flat lie. You've got a tremendous angle into the putting surface. But if you pull it a little bit, it takes the contours and goes down into very, very difficult situation. And it's basically a chip out. The same thing with the approach shot. If you take, if you go directly at the green and you pull the putting surface and you pull it, you're in extremely deep bunkers with a very difficult up and down. If you if you shy away from the aggressive play and you know that you hit it out to the right and you have a percentage, the percentages of your tee shot are going to find that fairway and you hit your second shot into the green and you, and you favor and you, you uh, shoot away from all the deep trouble. If you play that golf hole 10 times, if you take the aggressive play, you might make a few low scores, but you're going to make a lot of high scores. Conversely, if you hit it, you take the safe play, you're going to basically eliminate the high scores and once in a while make a low score. Mm -hmm. So it's all about percentage play. Is that? Am I making sense to you there? Sure, absolutely. Okay. I, I, when I played there last time, I played with a colleague of mine at Golf Digest, Dan Rappaport. I got to mention this if he, he yeah. might be listening. He, he, he birdied that hole on back-to-back days. You're kidding me. No. So I don't know. If he, I don't think he ever wants to go back and play it again. I just <laughs> walk off and leave that one alone. Yeah. So, so Derek, I think what 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 we're saying is kind of the same thing, really. That you know, and I, I built all I built a lot of that into all my early golf courses. You know, let's take on the trouble. Let's take on the penalty area. Let's take on the water. Ha- uh, take on the bunker, and from there, we're going to have a better shot in. And if you pull that off, it's a fantastic feeling. And and you know you you you've achieved your success but over the period of, let's say a year of playing at golf hole what are your percentages of making a low score or percentages of of, of having a disastrous score as opposed to playing the conservative route you're still going to make a low score from the conservative route you're still going to do that but you're taking a high high numbers out of out of the, out of the equation yeah, and I think you've just described the what separates you know tour pros from other players who are really talented is that they know that they they have over the course of their careers they've gotten to the point as you just referenced Tiger saying I'll, I'll never make I should never make another mental mistake they have diagnosed a golf course and projected it out over time what the best plays are and most of the time you know tour players play golf courses very similarly you could watch all the groups come through certain holes and. You don't, you know, it's a, it's kind of a cool hole when you see players using different clubs off the tee or, or, you know, trying to attack the hole in different ways. But most of the time they're hitting the, you know, if 
it's a three wood hole. It's obvious to everybody that it's a three wood off the tee yeah. or, or they're driving, they're all trying to drive the ball in the same place. So they, they know that they've, they've, they haven't outsmarted themselves, but, and I think that's what makes them elite. Yeah. So in, the great players intuitively always knew they couldn't articulate it, but they always knew this. A couple things that uh, talk about Nicholas playing, Nicholas and Seve playing St. Andrews and, and to me, a great golf hole decision off the tee is if you have elite players and if their scoring average is the same with hitting the driver off the tee as opposed to hitting a three wood off the tee. In other words, the three, you know, the closer you are to the putting surface or to the green, the, the lower your scoring average is going to be, uh, unless you hit it in a bunker or in light rough or things like that. So if you put a, a, a hazard out there, I'll say a bunker, where the driver is going to get into but they have room in the fairway. You have enough room to maybe hit the fairway. And this, and the scoring average is say 4.12 from that position. Or if you take a, take the trouble out of play and have a three metal in or hit a three wood off the tee, then the scoring average from 20 or 30 yards shorter is the same. That's the decision-making process that, that I try to encourage pros to make on the tee. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, I talk about uh, how golf pros play. Uh, one time I was talking to Jack Nicholas about his course management. And I looked at him and I said, you know, the greatest example of course management is you, meaning him, on the 17th hole, the road hole during the Open Championship in 1970. Here you've got the greatest player of all time on one of the greatest golf courses on one of the most notorious golf holes. And I looked at him, I said, you know, you had a short iron or a wedge in your hand every single day and you laid up all but the last round when you knew you needed a birdie. And he, and he looked at me, he said, yes, I laid up on the right side every single time. And he said, but I'll tell you a little story. He said, I was trying to lay up. I was trying to hit to the fat part of the green on the last day, but I came over the top of it and it squirted on me and I got it up close to the hole. And I really wasn't trying to do that. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I looked at him and I said, I, I, I didn't believe it. But now that I learned a little bit more and, 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 uh, and as I learned more, I realized, hey, that's how the great players play. And a lot of times when they get it close, they accidentally get it close and uh, because we have our dispersion. And he looked at me at the very end of the conversation. He said, the toughest discipline in the game of golf is to shoot away from your target. That's a tough discipline. So a discipline, you know, and we talk about Pine Valley, Pine Valley. And I try to do this on our, on my golf course. I try to build discipline golf. Discipline golf is the toughest type of golf to, uh, to play. And I encourage players to learn discipline. Give me that's another example at Pine Valley, why that's what, how, how that course excels in, in making you be disciplined. Cause most people aren't most members yeah. who play there. Most people who are guests that come through, you know, they're just, they're just trying to, you know, get the ball out there as far as straight as they possibly can. But over the over repeated play, where is the Pine Valley so good at that, at teaching discipline? I think every shot you have to have discipline to understand where the safest play is. And when you get in trouble, when you get, and you will get in trouble there, when you get in trouble, you have to have the discipline to maybe go backwards and, like I did in a competition one, there one time, I got it in a in a in a bunker, and I putted it down the bunker, 
so I could have a, a, a shot the next go around. You know, the, the, I put myself in a position. I just putted it. You putted I put my back toward back toward just to toward like a the, different section of the bunker. I hit it to a different section of the bunker with my back toward <laughs> the pin. I was twenty five feet from from the whole location, and I putted it down the bunker just so I. I knew if I was trying to, if I made the aggressive play that I could bring a high number into play. So I just took the high number out knowing I could get it down the bunker. And then I could explode it out. And the worst thing I was going to make was a double bogey. Now double bogey sounds bad, but at Pine Valley, you could make a triple quad really easy. Right. So I just putted it down the bunker and then I hit a very good bunker shot out. This is actually in a competition there. I hit a good, very good bunker shot out and I made bogey and I was happy. I went down, went, went away. So that's the type of discipline, and that is that is strategy. That is your strategy for the golf hole that time. You know, I get myself into trouble. How do I get myself out of trouble? And my strategy at Pine Valley uh, on a couple of those golf holes, like the second hole, which is a very tough driving hole, I just stand up there and I let it go with the driver. I hit it, and I don't, I don't get tentative with it. If, once you get tentative, that's when the big dispersion happens. So I go ahead and hit it, and if I find the fairway, it's great. If I don't find the fairway, I go for my, my, my sand wedge, and I pitch it out in the fairway and go from there. And that's that's kind of the discipline of Pine Valley. See, the- I would have thought it would be on the second hole would be the opposite. Like that's the hole where you just pull iron every day, make sure you get it in the fairway, and give yourself a shot every day up to that green. Uh that's if you if you're sure you can hit it in the fairway every day. <laughs> I back in the old days I used to hit one iron off that tee all the time. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but but then if you don't find a fairway, you're you're if you do find a fairway, you got a very long iron in. And if you don't find the fairway, you're in the same position as as a driver. So to your point, you look at your percentages. What are the percentage of the time that I'm going to hit an iron in the fairway? And that's X amount of percentage. And then if I do hit it in the fairway, what are the percentages that I'm going to hit it on the putting surface? And what's my proximity to the hole going to be? As opposed to what are my percentages hitting at a driver off the tee? And I'm going to have a shorter club into the hole. What's, what's, what's my percentages of being close and making par from there or two putting from there? So it's all about analyzing it over the course of uh, several rounds is where I'm going with that. What yeah. at, where what is the most difficult or challenging driving hole at Pine Pine Valley for you? Which is another one of these things that I think the more often you would play it, you'd have a lot yeah. of them. All these boogeymen would would creep into your into your mind, and you'd have a lot of thoughts going through your head. But two, what, two what and it seven are two and seven are my one most difficult driving holes. Yeah, and that's so uh, interesting because seven is just this huge football field of a fairway. It, it's huge, but once you miss the fairway, it's chip out. Yeah, because if you miss All it, there's the no way you're getting over Hell's Half Acre. I mean, there's- that's right. That's exactly right. So, so to what I was saying earlier, that imposes um, uh, doubt in my mind. So you have to go up there, and, and like Bob Rotella says, you have to love hitting 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 it in the fair, hitting it in the fairway as much as you fear driving it in the rough. So I think I'm starting to, you've actually kind of opened my eyes to this mental side of it. Uh, Um, You know, because when you, when you analyze it like that, it it, it starts to make sense. Whereas I think the average player just says, wow, seven's like one of the easiest driving holes on the golf course because there's so much grass out there. I'm just, you know, but the the consequence for missing it, even, even though it's a pretty bad miss uh, is quite, can be quite severe. 
Yeah, it's a chip a chip out if 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 you're lucky enough to get in a position to, for a chip out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And not have yeah. to hit another, you know, 200 and something yard shot to clear the hazard. Right. Third. Right. Uh, yeah. You, you bring a good point there, but I, 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 uh, I think to answer your question, Derek, uh, the strategy comes with understanding your percentages. It's not, it's so not a one, one off. It's not the micro, uh, it's not the, the bubble of one single golf hole. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the totality of the golf round. To, for the decision-making process. And so what I try to do in the design is try to force the golfer to have discipline to make the right decisions. Cause that is still strategy. Let me ask you about one specific hole, even though we're talking about, you know, you, what you just said is like, it's the totality. How do you, how do you play the 12th hole at Pine Valley? The new 12th hole. Yeah. The new versus I, the old. How does, how is that? Yeah, changed I'll aim, I'll aim down the right side of the fairway. I would say the right, right quarter of the fairway. And if I block it in the trees, most of the time I'll have a shot where I can get it either on the putting surface or close to the putting surface. And I try to bring the big deep bunkers out on the left-hand side, totally and completely out of play. If I do hit it in those bunkers, I don't even think about going at the putting surface. I just hit it out in the fairway and go from there. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a chip out, but I will I will absolutely now. It is true for one of those team grounds. You can challenge those bunkers and be real close to the green, and have an easy pitch. But if I do that over a course of a year, I'm going to fail more than I succeed. And that that's how I look at it. Yeah, is that a driver for you? Oh yeah, because the further you hit it, the you know it gets pretty wide down there. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I never played the hole pre-renovation. Sure. Do you do you like? Is it a better hole? Does it or does it change? I mean, it was going left was dead anyway, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was pretty dead. It really was. The fairway width is the same. It's just a little bit more. It, it I'm, it's not a little bit more intimidating. It's very intimidating now. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you. A couple, we'll, we'll wrap this up. Okay. Um, let me ask you a couple of questions for the elite players. Is it possible to design uh, a, a hole that is 60 or 70 yards wide in the fairway and yet have that still uh, cause them mental distress when they're trying, standing on the tee and, and trying to figure out what to do? In that 60-yard wide fairway, okay, so if, if you look at that, there, the, the dispersion for most pros on the tour is about 180 feet, 60 yards wide. So unless there's some sort of obstacles down the middle of the fairway, they lay them in the middle of the fairway and hit it away. Once again, it's about controlling the spin for those people. It's about controlling the spin. So I would say there would be, under most circumstances, it's a big wide fairway. They're aiming down the middle and hitting it. When you go to play a, and maybe you haven't played there, maybe you have, but when you go play a, a, a the, like the courses at Bandon on a calm day, or yeah. stream song, uh, those courses are the black course there. I mean, is that still for a, a high level elite player? Are those courses still enjoyable or do you want something a little more in your face that that's going to make you think a little bit more off the, especially off the tee? I, I, I think, I think the right question there is not enjoyable. Everything's enjoyable and those golf courses are extremely enjoyable. I think the question is, are you identifying the player who's playing the best at that time? 
Are you challenging that player? And you know, are you are you identifying those those people who are making the right decisions and hitting the best golf shots? And I think that would be the question. So I'll throw it back to you. If you have a big wide fairway and they can put it in the fairway and they can control their spin from there, is that is that identifying you know the person who's playing the best at that point in time, or is that bringing the whole field together? Yeah, it's probably bringing the whole field together. It depends yeah. on what's happening at the greens. Then it just turns into a putting contest. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I try to get our golf courses where we identify strong iron play. Now I want to backtrack on that a little bit too. Our golf courses are very very playable for the average for the average guy, the older player who doesn't spin the ball. Even if they, and it's all set up in maintenance. Even if they're in light rough, they can hit the ball out. And like the foul course at Indiana, Indiana at Indiana University, 17 of the 18 greens are open in the front and there are, and, and uh, 16 of the 18 greens are, are low profile where they can easily run it on the green. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're really looking for. You know, having the ability to roll it on the putting surface and, and finding the golf ball and finding the golf ball. Well, and then let's take a look at Augusta then, you know, that's okay. a, that's a wide golf course. You mentioned the fifth hole earlier from last year's tournament. Um mm-hmm. Is the goal is that is Augusta? You know, I have my own thoughts, but is it in, in your mind? What what does Augusta do that identifies the best player that week so well? Because uh, you know, it's it's so generous off the tee. You know, it, you have to hit it pretty crooked to get in trouble. Xander you know, not you know I, not accepted, but yeah, you know, but it does. It, it see every year it has the ability to identify the guy who's 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 nuts and bolts all day long. Yeah. So first off, I love Augusta. Uh, second, second off, I don't think it's that generous off the tee. I mean, one's a very difficult driving hole. One is, yeah. Yeah, two, two, unless you can move it right to left. Uh, two's tough. Two's tough. It's it it falls off to the left pretty good, and that's a that's a tough driving hole. Five's extremely tough. Seven is tough. Uh, eight's eight eight is pretty. You've got to you've got to hit it pretty straight on eight. Nine's generous. 10 is not the easiest. 11 is an extremely hard driving hole. 12, uh, or 13 rather, 13, 14, or, or you've got to drive it good. I, I think it's a pretty good driving golf course. I really do. When I, when I, and I know Augusta pretty well. I've been around it for, the, for at tournaments ever since 1985. And I've studied that golf course. It's, it's a pretty good driving golf course. It does, and it does encourage – with the setup of the whole location, it does it does encourage discipline play, tremendous discipline, and I think Will Zalatoris had the tremendous discipline when he finished runner up there. You know, discipline to hit three three medal off those tees. He hit three medal off two, three medal off five, three medal off thirteen, and he took all the trouble out of play. So that's the decision making process that I consider strategy, but not the strategy that I've implemented years ago. Just a, way, a different way of looking at it, really. All right, let's in, let's end on this one. Okay. What are the what are the, the Steve Smyers top five golf courses that that you've played that you think do the best at uh, achieving what you try to achieve in your designs, which is make the the golfer analyze the shot, make the correct decision, make the correct reads on the golf course, pick the correct lines, and then at the end of the week has identified the player who's playing the best. Yeah, so I love golf courses that identify great play. That's kind of the stimulation of the game. 
So we've already talked about two of them, Augusta and Pine Valley. Yep. I mean, Augusta really does. I mean, Augusta lets the everyday guy go out there and play all the time, but they can set that thing up to really identify great shot making. So I, I love that. Wingfoot West is just a fabulous golf course as far as that goes. Uh, Oakmont, you know, kind of interesting how they played the amateur at Oakmont. Uh, the, the, the next generation of players totally attacks the golf course differently. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you saw how they played Oakmont a little bit. Than the amateur, they were they're taking so there's a good example. They were taking trouble out of play, hitting to the opposite fairways, going down number one. Yeah, they hit it, you know, and what they're what they're doing there, they're not setting up the angles, they're they're setting up, they're taking all the trouble out of play and maybe trying to cut off some yardages in, in some places. But Oakmont very much uh identifies that. Um, you know, the honors course in Chattanooga is pretty good at that as well. So, how many did I just name? I think that's five. Okay. Wingfoot. You know, I got to add in LA. I got to add in LA country club. That's a fabulous golf course. And another Los golf Angeles course League. though, that I guess maybe it's like Augusta. I, I, I've been there, but I'm not, you know, obviously an elite player. So I'm, uh-huh. I'm looking at it differently, but with, with fairly generous fairways. And I don't think the rough is going to be, uh, you know, a penal style U S open kind of rough. It'll be very interesting to see what kind of players succeed uh, their next summer at the U S open. I would be surprised if they don't tighten those fairways up some hmm. with, with, with rough, but the, the, and, and I'm referring to the, uh, when you hit it into the, uh, your approach shots into the putting surfaces, there's so many good hole locations there that you have to absolutely have the discipline to, to, to not go for them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That golf course tempts you like no other golf. Course. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough when you've got a five iron into par, par five and you say, you know, I'm not sure I really want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that, yeah. that hits the magic balance be, between, you know, offering that thought, that food for thought for the elite player and also for the, the amateur, the, the high handicapper, the mid handicapper, giving them enough rope that they can you know, kind of scoot themselves around on and still have fun trying to hit to some of those pins and, and hit to those greens. Yeah. It's fun for them because yeah. they're not trying to make birdie. Yeah, well, you know that that's another that's another topic. Uh, even elite players, they kind of just let the birdies come. You know, once they get themselves in position, but they're not really trying to aggressively get. Like Tiger says, I play aggressively to conservative targets, and if he gets himself in position, then he then he then he tries to make that. You know, he's a great putter. Then he tries to make that putt for birdie. Well, Steve, yeah. this has been a fascinating conversation. I. Every time I talk to you about this topic, especially, I feel like I learned something. It's you, I, you know, don't I don't look at golf courses the way the way uh, elite players and, and that you do. And I feel like at least now I have a sort of a, a key, you know, a reference that I can I can work off of. And I do find it fascinating that how strategy there's paper strategy and then there's on-course strategy for good players. And I'm a little disheartened that the old, the old concepts of strategy and architects, you know, encouraging you to play to one side or the other and buy angles is, is really yeah. a fallacy that the better player actually, and as we've just said, it's, it's a fallacy across the board because <laughs> poor players aren't good enough to take advantage of it. Good players aren't, you know, well, well Derek on that, I mean, that is, that is a, a valid concept. It's just that you, if you look at it over a course of 18 holes, if you do that on every single hole as a player, you're not going to you're you're not going to see what's your percentage of, of success mm-hmm. as opposed to playing away from that trouble. 
what's your, what's your, so you've got to have the discipline to shoot away from it. And what's your percentage of success if you do that, as opposed to taking trouble on, on, on every single hole. And I imagine in your tournament experience, it's, that's made you a much better player. When you started analyzing it, like th- like you just explained over the course of a tournament or, or several days, you must have become uh, much better than, than you were before you had that understanding. I think I can, what, what it does, it relieves the tension. And you say, and you're, 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 you're able to say, okay, this is my target. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go for it. But I can tell you, as much as I've studied it and as much as I've thought about it, I still go out and play and I still make those mistakes. <laughs> and I say to myself, why did I, at least I can identify it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of the game, right? The light in Steve Smyers' head went off when he realized during a tournament he was playing on a course he himself designed that he was intentionally playing away from all the strategy that he'd built into the course. He came to realize that the key to being competitive and scoring well over time wasn't in unlocking strategic puzzles or hitting to specific advantageous areas on the fairways and greens, but instead it was in understanding percentages and playing the odds. What usually makes a player great, in his view, is the ability to control spin on approach shots and have the discipline to identify the correct target for each shot given the circumstances. Everything a player does should be geared toward maximizing those advantages. In other words, for Smyers, playing strategically means not hunting angles and taking on risk to earn a reward, though there are times for that, but instead having the mental capacity to play conservatively, to play away from hazards to the center of the fairway and the middle of the green. It's a pretty interesting outlook that matches what we see when we watch the professional game today and the highest levels of amateur play. And it could also have some impactful lessons for how to design and set up courses for elite level events. At the very least, Smyers' views on modern strategy make for some pretty compelling course management advice that maybe all of us could use. That was a conversation I wanted to have with Steve on the podcast for a while, so I want to thank him for joining us and sharing his evolved views on strategy. Please subscribe to the podcast and share wherever you can. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. You can also find my writing in Golf Digest magazine and at GolfDigest.com. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.